0: You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nation's true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty.
1: This is 3CR
2: Breakfast.
1: Oh yes. news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to late 30am.
2: double.
1: Good morning and welcome to 3CR Breakfast. Today you'll hear conversations on politics, alternative news, community actions and other updates.
3: A message from Victoria's community sector.
1: I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of covid
0: to no one else being separated from their mum in aged care.
4: I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us.
3: I really want to see my mum.
4: I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without
1: a
5: mask on.
6: To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can
7: come and watch me play.
5: I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again.
7: So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated.
3: Let's get back to the good things.
8: I ask you to get vaccinated.
3: For all of us.
8: Please get vaccinated.
3: A message from Victoria's community sector.
1: A 3CR supporter.
9: Planet X presents two musically cinematic benefit nights for 3CR at Brunswick Burrito, 102 Hinkle Street, Brunswick. On Friday the 13th of August, Golden Fist Productions present the premiere of the Crana unconditional loop promotional film. Introduced by the director and the Krana Plans vocalist Simon Strong, the Krana Plans are also playing acoustically. Plus, there'll be Soviet psychedelic shorts. On Friday the 20th of August, the New Little Murders documentary "Don't Let Go" will be screening with a Little Murders acoustic show. The film will be introduced by the director Matt Wilson and Little Murders main man Rob Griffith. And the film tells the story about Rob's long-running mod band, Little Nerdies. There'll also be mystery shorts to round off the night. Burritos and drinks available at 7pm before each session. The donation for tickets is only $20 for one night and $35 for both. Limited tickets available online at X 3 Benefit. Dot That's planetx three CR benefit.
1: Up next, Isaiah Firebrace with their cover of Don't Dream It's Over. Mm-hmm.
8: Yeah, yeah, yeah There's a battle ahead Many battles are lost But you'll never see the end of the world While you're traveling with me
1: Ziya brace there with their cover of the Crowded House song, Don't Dream It's Over. You're on 3CR.
10: And you've just tuned into 3CR. On the line, we've got Alice Drury from the Human Rights Law Centre. Hello, Alice. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Grace. So good to be here. It's lovely to have you. Now, I just was just having a look at the media release, and there's a really excellent quote from you. It talks about you were mentioning the rules would silence charities at a time when their advocacy is more crucial than ever. Talk about what's going on with, with all this.
7: Yeah, sure. So at the Human Rights Law Centre, I work on in a space that we call democratic freedoms, which is, unfortunately, often trying to stop the government from introducing pretty bad laws that are pretty undemocratic. Um, and it's been a fairly busy space the last few years. Uh, and this is one of those laws. And, you know, it's been a really tough, couple of years for Australians. We've faced unprecedented crises from the pandemic to bushfires, floods, economic recession, and charities have been on the front lines supporting Australian communities through these crises. In this moment, the Morrison government should really be supporting charities and welcoming our advocacy, not threatening us with laws that could shut us down for speaking out.
10: So basically, these proposed laws have nothing to do with democracy. Can you just talk a little bit about some examples of charities and what they could do, supposedly do wrong to be closed down?
7: Yeah, We firmly believe that these regulations will be very undemocratic um, and really troubling. And effectively what they do is say to charities, if you commit a really minor offence, in particular in relation to peaceful protest, then we might effectively shut your entire charity down, um, and that includes, you know, if a staff member decides to go to a peaceful, you know, march. It could be, you know, March for Justice or an Invasion Day rally, or you know, just like I heard just now, like your ad for a peaceful protest uh, mm-hmm. against, um, you know, indefinite detention for mm-hmm. refugees and asylum seekers in Australia. If your if your staff member blocks a footpath, um, then that's enough to actually deregister a charity under these regulations.
10: I hope that doesn't go through, Alice. That's actually quite concerning.
7: It's concerning, and we're really worried. The whole sector is really worried. Um, we've got you know well over 50, 60 charities calling on the government not to introduce these regulations. It doesn't need to. There's no problem that it's really trying to fix. The ACNC, the Charities Commissioner himself, admitted in Parliament that there's no widespread problem that these regulations are trying to address. Um, so it's a it, major concern and really unnecessary. So what
10: is the Morrison government's rationale for for putting in these new rules, do you think?
7: Um, following through on a promise that it's made after animal rights protesters blocked traffic in, you know, Melbourne C B D and some of them, you know, went to farms and other places where I understand there was factory farming to protest. And so the Morrison government is sort of responding to that to those theories of protests by saying if you're a charity and you engage in any conduct like this or in any way support conduct like this, then you should be deregistered. Um, so it's sort of the Morrison government believes that it's following through on that promise. We think that the whole premise of that promise is, is wrong and baseless. Um, but not only that, it's actually capturing almost all of Australia's fifty-nine thousand charities with this one regulation to capture it. Um, and when is this being debated?
10: Sorry, when would this be debated?
7: Uh, so this is a regulation, not a law not a piece of legislation. So it will go through Parliament in a very different way and, in fact, doesn't need to be debated and, effectively, it just needs to be introduced, which we expect it will be in the first week of August. And then the government just has to sit pretty for 15 sitting days before it will become law automatically. Um, So, unfortunately, it puts us in a bit of a trickier position because we have to find people to vote against it rather than requiring the government to get the vote to vote for it as if it was a piece of legislation.
10: Is that not setting a very, very dangerous precedent, that laws can just be rushed through like this?
2: It is
7: a dangerous precedent. Um, It also follows on some dangerous precedent that we're seeing in terms of quite an anti-democratic trend, um, certainly by the federal government. And, yeah, the the consultation process with charities was was really flawed. the latest sort of permutation of this regulation wasn't shared with anyone as far as we know, it certainly wasn't made public um, for consultation. It was just announced just the on uh, you know, to get into the really wonky detail, um, you know, we know that sixty five charities made submissions um, you know, uniformly against these regulations and Treasury hasn't even published those submissions. Um so there's not even that kind of public scrutiny that that has been given to these to these regulations.
10: So, how can that be allowed?
7: Concerns that these regulations could be unlawful. Under our constitution, we have the implied freedom of political communication, which is just a fancy way of sort of saying we have a right to communicate about public, um, you know, matters of public importance and politics. It could be that these regulations are uh, conflict the Constitution on that basis. But, um, you know, we would much rather these regulations not be passed so that we don't have to take them to the High Court. It's very much our preference.
10: I imagine if these laws are passed that they, this will be taken to the High Court?
7: We'll exploring avenues um, to challenge them. I'm sure many of our charity partners um, will be similarly looking into it.
10: These are really, really, very, very dangerous times, Alice. They are. Yeah.
7: Because I work across not just this issue, but you know, with of lower law reform and um, protest rights generally. Um, you know, things like freedom of information laws. We're we're seeing the systematic decline in our democratic rights in Australia. And when do you think that started? I think it. Probably it's a good question. Um, I mean, these things are never linear, um, but I certainly think the Howard era wasn't great era for transparency and, and democratic freedoms, and also just kind of attitudes to civil society. Um, and it was during the Howard era that we saw the sort of first curtailment of charities' ability to advocate on their issues. Howard certainly, um, you know, attempted to undermine Charity advocacy in that way, and we saw a continuation of that trend um, under Turnbull, under Abbott, uh, and now we're seeing it under Morrison.
10: Well, it's about time that the Liberals were voted out. Then we would very much
7: welcome any government that did not, um, yeah, commit these sustained attacks against charities.
10: Whilst the pandemic is is real, and we need to ensure that the coronavirus doesn't spread. Would you say that the health orders emerging from the pandemic have have had a decline of of people's rights?
7: We believe that the health orders in every state and federally need to comply with human rights. That means that they need to be necessary, they need to be proportionate, Uh, and at times that does include restrictions on the right to protest in the case of... Yeah, a pandemic, a, a public health crisis like they're seeing now. Um, that's why at the Human Rights Law Centre we strongly back a charter of human rights like we have in Victoria. We, we believe we need a charter at national level because that gives guiding principles to governments to make sure they don't act um, disproportionately um, to curtail people's rights.
10: So moving on now, and and I know you're you're not representing an Aboriginal organisation. But nevertheless, I really would like to to ask you a a general question in regards to these proposed changes to charity regulations. How would that jeopardise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community's self-determination? I've spoken
7: to Aboriginal community-controlled organisations like VALS, the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, um, and they're really worried that this will hinder the ability of of charities like VALS to support incredibly important movements for First Nations justice, like Black Black Lives Matter, um, or stopping the removal of Aboriginal children from their parents, you know, grandmothers against removals. Um, So, yeah, I I think this is a really significant um, risk to the ability of grassroots movements like the First Nations justice, um, to, to protest, but also to, to get their demands met to be heard.
10: Absolutely. And it's it, it really is most concerning, Alice. I'm just having a look here at the... So many people have contributed to the media release um, from the Human Rights Law Centre. And isn't it interesting, Executive Director of Anglicare makes a really great quote here. Charity is not just about helping people in poverty, it's about creating a country where poverty doesn't exist. This government,
7: I think, would like charities to stick to planting trees and handing out blankets, but we shouldn't be asking, you know, why the bushfires are raging and why people are homeless. They want us to sort of keep our mouths shut and just do the service delivery, and I think that's what Casey Chambers, the Executive Director of Anglicare, is speaking to.
10: Absolutely. I mean, how many times do we hear Scott Morrison saying that c- climate change doesn't exist? Climate change isn't real. We're, we're not even involved in the, in the, nuclear, the anti-nuclear treaty.
7: Things that Australia could be doing much better, and we need civil society to be strong, to be putting pressure on our government to do better on many, many issues.
10: How do you think that the new rules would affect prisoners?
7: In particular, and this is not my area of expertise, but I certainly okay. have, um, you know, concerns for the, you know, really important movement of stopping Aboriginal deaths in custody. Um, things as well like raising their age of criminal responsibility from 10 to 14 across the country. Um, you know, these these campaigns are meaningful and powerful because they have grassroots support. Um, And what these regulations do is undermine the ability of charities to support grassroots movements um, and to really advocate robustly for the reforms that Australia needs for prisoners.
10: So what can the community do to stop these laws from coming through? So first...
7: what we're asking people to do is to write to your MP to see if you can get a meeting with them, um, particularly if you if you live in an electorate with a Liberal or national member. Um, it's really, really important. You know, write letters to the editor from your local paper is also fantastic. Um, we need to bring this to the attention of everyone in the government so that Scott Morrison understands that this is not a popular move um, and... Yeah, I think so. There's, there's a, we've got a fact sheet up on our website to help people do that, um to both get across the issue and and communicate about it, um, and really strongly support your listeners
10: to, um,
7: to to do that.
10: Absolutely. And can you just read out the the website of the Human Rights Law Centre there?
2: Yeah,
7: the Human Rights Law Centre's website is hrlc.org.au. Um, but probably the easiest thing to do is just to type in ACNC, uh, HRLC, um, fact sheet, and then that comes up pretty quickly. So it's HRLC, ACNC, fact sheet.
10: And I'm hoping that we can call on the Australian Government to refrain from introducing the, regulation, the regulations into Parliament. Just a final question. The charities that would really, like these rules would really have extraordinary powers, wouldn't they, to shut down a charity if the Commissioner believes it's likely that a minor offence may occur in the future. Can you explain that?
7: The, the rules are so broadly drafted that they can, they, they give the powers to the Commissioner to deregister a charity even if no one has broken the law. That includes preemptive powers. So the commissioner can say, like you said, the commissioner can say, I'm going to deregister this charity. Look, they haven't broken the law, but I believe they're likely to in the future. It's it's pretty extraordinary. And it's worth noting as well, like no political party, no business is um, exposed to to this kind of arbitrary treatment. Uh, It's really charities that have been singled out for this, this punitive response.
10: It's extremely punitive. So, so basically you can go and hand out ham sandwiches and, you know, and, and do little things, but you can't actually, you know, give an opinion or protest.
7: To give an example, you know, a charity might want to support the Invasion Day rally but it's yes. happening on the 26th of January. They might want to give their staff, um, you know, a couple of hours off um and to allow them to march if the invasion day rally isn't authorized by police then technically a lot of the actions like blocking traffic you know walking down the road might be unlawful the police don't treat it as unlawful the police aren't going to arrest anyone there's you know long-standing sort of understanding that the police won't do that nonetheless the charity that's allowed their staff to attend could be deregistered. Even worse than that, if a charity tweets about the you know, invasion day rally, then that could be enough to see it
10: deregistered. Oh my God, this sounds terrible, Ellis.
7: It's, so it's very far-reaching. It's it's extremely far-reaching. It's 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 in breach of international law. It's in breach of their right to freedom of expression, you know, freedom of assembly. It has absolutely no place in a democratic country, um, and we, we really need the government to, to refrain from passing it.
10: Would that include community radio stations as well?
2: Yeah, it
7: would do um, particularly those with charitable status, which I understand is some of them. Um, and yeah, you know, airing an sort of ad or a public notice about where a protest is taking place could be enough to see the radio station deregistered.
10: Goodness. No, no, this cannot go. Come on, listeners, start getting onto the website. And the Human Rights Law Centre and having a look at the fact sheets and start please start writing letters to the editor in the papers and we we need to um get going here and stop these laws from getting in. Alice, thank you so much for coming onto the programme. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks a
3: lot. Take care of yourself. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're on 3CR Monday, Brecky, joined by Jacob. And Fung. And that was Marissa Spizarro speaking with Alice Jury from the Human Rights Law Centre about proposed changes to regulations governing civil and community groups with charitable status. It's much cause for concern. Contact your local member and share your concerns. Um, you can access more info at hashtag for charities. And that fact sheet that Alice mentioned can be found on the HRLC website by searching acnc-proposed-governance-standard-3 or going to hrlc.org.au forward slash fact sheets. Um, good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us.
4: How are you this uh, morning, Jacob?
3: Um, I'm going great. I'm really glad that uh, Melbourne is out of lockdown. Yes, um, and from what I saw, it's a beautiful day outside.
4: It's really lovely. Mm. Yeah.
3: Um, groovy. So we've got some great show coming up for you today. Um, next up, we've got a section from uh, the the show. Uh, let's note that the following interview discusses some mental health issues, and it might be a bit upsetting for some listeners. So if this type of conversation is a trick for you, come back in 15 minutes. And for support, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 and in this next segment psychologist dr louise hansen shares her experience of living with psychosis and what's helped her with recovery louise spoke with susie from 3cr's brainwave program
11: so terry would you like to um i guess start off by giving us a bit of background how you came to gambling and how you think your um your early life contributed towards the the direction you took yep. in life.
12: No worries. Bill. I really think uh, in early life, in primary school, when you had the fates, and you used to have the games like the lucky dips and the um, throw the coins into the squares, and you'd have. The, I, I got that uh, illness of uh, addiction where I wanted to win, 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 win. And then as I got through to my early teens, I started on the Space Invaders and the. Uh, and all the games that were in the arcades, and uh, I got really good at them, <laughs> really, really compulsive, and uh, a lot of money um, was spent in them, you know, with nothing to win except for a high score. And I hit, hit the age of 16, and um, I was in Albury, and I walked into a pokey venue and uh, pulled my first handle, and that was it. Did, uh, you, did you win the first
11: time? No, no, no but <laughs> just
12: the noise of the coins falling Onto the onto the tray was enough to make you think that the skill that you had in the video games you could do with the pokies back then. You know.
11: So how how much do you think the video games contributed to, to towards your love of sort of m- colour and movement and sound?
12: Yeah, I think it had the same same sort of uh, what brainwave patterns that you get when you're gambling, like the excitement that you can beat this or the excitement that I'm going to get the high score or I can go to the next level. I think it does sort of play into that, so, yeah.
11: Yeah, and I guess in the old video games, it was, I guess, repetition as well. It was game after game. So did you, how could you monitor yourself at that time and only play one
12: game, or was it...? No, a lot of my brother's money was put through that, yeah. <laughs> He doesn't know that, so I hope he's not listening. But, yeah, a lot of his money was put through that, and I got that skillful because I was wagging school. I was wag- wagging months off, off school to go and play these things in the city. They had, like, big arcades in the city back in the 80s. Yes. And um, I was always there, and Mum thought I was at school, mm. you know.
11: So what about family life? You, you mentioned a brother, but yep. was did you have a happy family life?
12: Um, yeah, my mum, my mum... Uh, adopted me, um, she was a foster mother, and um, there was always babies coming in and out, so really, there was like three kids, maybe three foster kids and myself, but because I was adopted, the youngest one closest to me was five years young, uh, older, so I really wasn't in their group, if yeah. you know what I mean, and my brother was very, very successful, he, he was a workaholic from well, he's, he's a hard worker. <laughs> he's a hard worker. And even now at 60 whatever years old, he's still got two jobs. And, uh, you know, he's a multi-millionaire, self-made. And I was always comparing myself to him and trying to be like him. And my career wasn't going to be like his because I'm not a hard worker. I work hard at trying to not find hard work, you know. Yeah. And he found that out once when he hired me. He had to sack me because every time he drove away, I sat down. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I always had that ambition to be like my brother, and my dad was very successful too. So, you know, it was a work, 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 study, work, study, work. So, I always had that to look up to, but I wasn't that frame wasn't of mind. That kind of kid. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
11: Um, so, what about school? Did you enjoy school?
12: Oh, I did, I did. The teachers didn't enjoy me, but um, I got kicked out of three schools. Um, most of the time. I was just a clown of the class. I didn't study um I was really somewhere to go and meet my mates. I'd wag half the time and go and play those games anyway and then when i start i used to i used to be a boxer because I was picked on at school all the time, and um I wouldn't wear my glasses to school, so if you can't see the blackboard, you can't do the work, yeah, so I was always a disruption anyway, so yeah, yeah.
11: Yes, the things we do. Mm. And I guess back in those days there was less care given to kids who didn't really fit in or didn't, didn't conform. Um,
12: yeah, they, they, you're more of a pest to them, so if they could get rid of you, they could. Yeah. You know, and the school I went to was a community school, or well, the third school I went to was a community school. And you could just put your hand up and go, Colin, I'm going. Yeah, no worries, Terry, see you tomorrow. Yeah. And your parents wouldn't even know. Mm.
11: Yeah, when I was going to school there was a a kid who wasn't particularly bright, and the headmaster would um, use him to mow the lawns. And so we'd be sitting in class, and this (laughs) kid would be out in the oval mowing a lawn. It was like everybody was going, it's a bit unusual. Um, But that was was really the way it was. Um, They didn't... You know, there wasn't that same... um, I guess, commitment to the kids yep. that was getting through it.
12: Well, as you brought that up, I just thought of a couple of kids that went right through our school that can't read or write yet. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's yeah. pretty bad. That's
11: yeah. tragic, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Tragic oversight of responsibility. Um, so I guess it, it takes a bit of money to, to play the games all the time. So as a, as a child, where did you get the money?
12: I think I might have mentioned that already, about my brother. Yeah. Um, Mum used to give me money when I asked for it. Uh, like, say, I, I was going to the football, or she thought I was going to the football. She'd give me money for the football, and that would end up in the games. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't really... I don't think I really... Oh, well, taking it from my brother's stealing, you Yeah. So I was stealing. I was stealing. Uh, God, I hope he's not listening to this. I'm going to get a bashing. Yeah. But... Um, <laughs> Yeah, uh, um, yeah, my brother, my brother had, cause he worked in the pub, he had change pockets and he used to put all his change into a jar and then, you know, all of a sudden he didn't have 50 cent pieces and then, you know, um, so, you know, was, I know it's wrong and I know I owe something to him <laughs> now, even at 53. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's the only way I really got money. I didn't go robbing anything back then. So yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
11: Um, so were you attracted to anything else? Were you attracted to any smoking or alcohol or drugs?
12: Um, I, not at that time, not at that time. Um, I think I became compulsive at my, my sport because um, I was getting beat up and stuff like that and I think I became uh, an addict to training and that's why I became successful at that, that sport. I trained every day, I ran every night, you yeah. know, I did exactly what I should have been doing and I think a lot of sports people are addicts, you know, and that's why they succeed so well and also you see a lot of sports people after they finish their sport pick up an addiction like drinking, drugs or gambling.
11: Yeah, when, yeah. They, yeah, when they're coming down from the high,
12: yes. Yeah. yeah, so I think that's a big thing. We see a lot of people in gamblers Anonymous that have been on the main stage.
11: Okay, yeah, yeah,
12: playing in mm-hmm. grand finals, <laughs> I won't mention any names, but you know
11: yeah it it must be difficult to come down out of that elevated position and yeah. realise you're just human again, uh, yeah, uh, that's for sure, so you know talking about school then, so you you were saying you you developed or you got into boxing because you were being targeted as a as a youth, yeah, so What was it like then to gain the ascendancy through boxing?
12: Uh, Sometimes you can become a bully yourself. Yeah. You know, um, I think through that time, I went and found a lot of people that used to bully me and um, stood over them a bit. Um, I can remember one guy, uh, he was about five years older than me, and I found him at an arcade. And he was more or less nearly in tears, because he thought I was going to bash him, and I knew if I would bashed him or hurt him, mm. I was just as much a boy as he was when he bullied me. So I yeah. just walked away. Yeah. Yeah. So some weren't so so lucky, but he was. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right.
11: Um, so you left school early.
12: Um, I did the, the amount of years that you're supposed to, but <laughs> the minimum. I did three three year tens, <laughs> but that's all right. Yeah. Mum pulled me out the last year. So. Yeah. And so if, if you had difficulty
11: learning at school, what was life like going out to work?
12: Um, I, I chose a career where I didn't have to be a brainiac or be smart. I, I went into the railways uh, and I knew, because I had the ambition from my brother and that, I knew that in the railways they go on seniority and all you have to do is study a couple of courses and you can move mm-hmm. up in the ranks, Yeah. which I was one of the fastest movers in the um, signalling grades in the railways. So by the time I was uh, 20, I was um, a special class signalman. So, okay. Yeah.
11: yeah. So I guess that meant that you had a bit of money as well. Yes. So did the money, did your gambling increase the more money you got?
12: Yes, every, uh, every weekend off that I had, me and my ex-wife, it was my girlfriend at the time, would shoot up to Albury <laughs> back where it started. Yeah. And with their with their parents or family and have a pokey weekend or um, you know, whatever. So you'd drink, you'd play pokies, you'd be in a motel with a spa pool. It was it was like a weekend away, it was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah.
11: So did you have any decent wins or not?
12: Um, if I did have any decent wins, I went straight back in, Yeah. Um, because there was going to be a bigger one. Um, I remember one time where I ma- I'm not going to mention figures of money, yeah. but there was a huge amount of money, and I was just going to take it back to this level, and then I'd go just under that level, and then I'd go back to this level, and I walked out with nothing. So yeah, and when I had that win, I had my arms on both chairs, going, "What do you want to drink? What do you want?" To I'm just king shit, you know, just becoming egotistic. Yeah. Mm. So. Uh,
11: and what's it like to lose it after winning it?
12: Oh, uh, what's that feeling? Yeah, it's it's uh, yeah. You just feel like a low life. You feel like you want to kill yourself. You feel. I think the only reason I'm alive is because I um I raised my kids on my own, but okay. um. If I didn't have them, I think there would have been times where I would have just gone and taken something and finished myself off. Mm. Especially when you're knocking on your mum's door looking for money. And my mum's got an Order of Australia medal, so she's a really giving person. And you're looking for money, and she's so afraid of the face Mm. that you've got on, you know, because she can see how angry you are, and and she doesn't deserve stuff like that. No. And I hope my brother's not listening again. (laughs) I'm stuffed. <laughs> yeah.
11: So, you know, your your work meant that you you had income, yep. but you couldn't keep the income very long. So, was it life difficult as a gambler? You know, you you had plenty of money, but it all went to the gambling. Yeah. So, um,
12: how how do you live between pay packets? Well, you live between pay packets. But I actually was smart enough to hand over the money to my wife when we were married. And we actually bought a house and she was making triple payments on the house, which was leaving us with nothing, which made me want to gamble more to get something. You know what I mean? Like uh, I was just, okay. And then I was obviously gambling while she wasn't home and we weren't seeing each other because we were doing rotating shifts. So when she wasn't home, I was down gambling or whatever. So, yeah, very difficult and we ended up losing that house. Yeah, so... So do you want to talk
11: through that sort of losing the house? What, you know, going from having a house to not having a house mm. is, is not a five-minute activity. No. So how many years did that take?
12: Well, my, my ex-wife left me 97 and left me with three kids. Like she took off and left the three kids as well. And so I couldn't do rotating shifts anymore. So I ended up being on a pension So I've gone down from like a $75,000 a year job To a $23,000 A year pension Um, Then she wouldn't pay half her mortgage And so I decided As a 29 year old With half a brain I won't pay my half either I'll (laughs) fix you And um, because she'd been making the triple payments We had a bit of equity in the house which allowed me to stay there for about a year before they uh, actually took the house office at the bank. mm Yeah, so, so I was gambling out of control when I was raising the kids on myself, by myself. Yeah. Um, there was one, one instant where I actually left the kids at home, went to gamble and forgot that I had a um, human services appointment with a child protection. And I come home and found child protection sitting on the couch with my kids. Yeah. mm not good. No, no, I was, I, I was very lucky. My mum was uh, a foster mother and that she had connections and I was actually able to do a program through them to, to keep my kids.
3: A message from
12: Victoria's community sector.
0: I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking
4: forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us.
3: I really want to see my mum.
4: I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on.
6: To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and
0: watch me play.
5: I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again.
0: So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated.
3: Let's get back to the good things.
8: I ask you to get vaccinated.
3: For all of us.
2: Please
3: get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector.
2: Female identifying
10: artists aged 18 to 35 are invited to enter the Ellen Jose Art Award, a $15,000 non-acquisitive award. Ellen Jose was a pioneer in Australia's urban indigenous art movement and a radical activist and social justice campaigner. The award is given in the hope that it will support the winning artist's continued development by providing recognition as well as a financial boost. All six finalists will receive an artist fee and have the opportunity for their work to be professionally presented in an exhibition with an accompanying publication. The award is a partnership between the Ellen Jose Memorial Foundation and Bayside City Council. Entries are now open and close on Friday the 27th of August. Head to bayside.vic.gov.au and search for the Ellen Jose Art Award for all the details. A
2: 3CR supporter.
8: Love on your way What can I say You feel the pain. You
2: change
4: You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. Um, just a correction there, before the announcements, we played an interview with um, Terry, um, and uh, that interview um, challenged the negative stereotypes of people living with a mental illness and also discussed um, uh, gambling as well as an issue. Um and that was from Living Free, which is a 3CR program. Um, if you'd like to listen more, uh, they are on every Thursday from 1 to 2 p.m. Up now, um, we have campaigner Andrew Hunter um, looking at a uh, pr- pr- property development proposal putting the Tundra Harbour bird life at risk. Andrew spoke to 3CR's Out of the Blue program for this conversation.
6: Andrew, could you tell us about Tunda Harbour and why it's so special?
5: Yeah, sure. So, Tunda Harbour, it's um, a network of sites within the Morton Bay um, area just southeast of Brisbane. Um, and it's internationally recognised for its significance for biodiversity. Through a few different mechanisms, so it's one. Um, it's recognized as a key biodiversity area, um, and that's because of its importance to migratory shorebirds, and including the eastern curlew. Uh, and it's also internationally recognized through um, a international treaty called the Convention on um, uh, the Ramsar Convention, which is uh, a convention to uh, identify and protect the world's most important Um, wetlands. Uh, So there's about, I think, a little over 2,300 Ramsar listed wetlands across the world, including, I think, 66 within Australia. Um, And Australia is one of the signatories to this um, global treaty. Um, So it includes uh, over 130 nation states that have signed up saying that they will do everything in their power, um, both legally and in practice, to protect these important sites. Uh, Morton Bay, uh, as a whole has been recognized as the, the single most important site for the, uh, Eastern Curlew, which is, um, this is an amazing, uh, migratory shorebird, um, that spends you know, its, its winters here in Australia, um, before it migrates, um, over 10,000 kilometers to, uh, Siberia and China where it, um, breeds and raises its young. Um, so Morton Bay is the most important site in all of Australia for this species that Unfortunately, over the last um, 30 years has really seen significant declines in its population, um, where it's seen over 80% of its population um, decline over those uh, last 30 years, which has led it to being listed as critically endangered um, at the federal level uh, under Australia's key national environmental protection. Uh, legislation, the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act, 1999.
6: Yeah, absolutely. It's clearly a special place that needs protecting. So can you tell us about this development proposal at the harbour?
5: Yeah, sure. So um, this proposal has been um, really going on since about 2015, um, and that was... Uh, based on the, the previous Queensland government, the Campbell Newman government declared Tuna Harbor, the area around Tuna Harbor as a priority development area, which essentially uh, removed a lot of the um, uh, mechanisms for assessment and review for any kind of development proposal, uh, including uh, some environmental assessments. Um, and basically once that uh, priority development area was declared, it went out to a tender. Um, where different corporations and companies could put in a bid for what they thought they could do um, to to develop this area. Um, And that led to Walker Corporation, which is uh, one of the richest and and biggest uh, private um, real estate development companies in Australia. Uh, They won that tender, um, although we're not really sure about the process, as there's been um, uh, some uh, gag clauses and confidentiality agreements about the actual agreement between, uh, the corporation and the local government and state government. Um, so we're not really sure, um, what those contracts say, but basically, um, uh, Walker Corporation, um, their proposal is to build 3,600, uh, unit apartment and, um, commercial precinct, uh, right on top of Tunda Harbor. Uh, so this would be, um, not on current land. They, they propose to, um, dredge up um, the important feeding habitat for the eastern curlew and some um, wetlands there at uh, Tunda Harbor. So dredge up that um, the mud flats and the wetland there um, to build this massive apartment complex uh, right out on the water. Mm. Um, and as far as we are aware, this this level of private development has never occurred within uh, the boundaries of a Ramsar-listed wetland. Mm-hmm. Definitely not in Australia, and as far as we're aware, uh, nowhere in, in the world. So that it really sets a, a very dangerous precedent if this is allowed to go ahead, that basically um, our most important wetlands are f- free and open for private development.
6: And you just mentioned that um, like a project like this obviously goes through a number of a process of environmental provo- approvals. Where is this project at now?
5: So currently, it's um, it's being reviewed under the, um, uh, like I said earlier, the, the National Nature Laws of the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act, the EPBC Act. Uh, so any time a proposal, um, whether that's a real estate proposal, um, extractive industry, uh, could potentially have an impact on what's called a, a matter of national environmental significance. So that includes Ramsar-listed wetlands. That includes. Uh, listed threatened species like the critically endangered Eastern Curlew, uh, World Heritage Sites. So there's a few different, um, I guess, criteria that could trigger the EPBC Act. And if a, propo- a proposal could potentially impact one of those um, different, um, uh, what are called matters of national environmental significance, then the proponent has to uh, put in a referral to the federal government, basically, giving them a full um, list of what they see the impacts could be, uh, and then the Minister for the Environment would um, you know, make a, a decision on whether that um, referral would need to go through further assessment through an environmental impact statement in some instances, and that's where Toon to Harbor is at right now. So in 2017, I believe, the then Minister for the Environment, Josh Frydenberg, um, declare that Tunda Harper's proposal was a controlled action and it would need an environmental impact statement um, and that actually went against the advice of the Department of Environment who advised the minister that it should be rejected full stop at that stage uh, but unfortunately he, he made the opposite decision and decided that this proposal needs to, to go through a full environmental impact statement. Uh, and, and for the past three years, Walker Corporation have been developing the impact statement. Um, so basically that will be tens of thousands of pages of documents um, uh, from the proponents, the Walker Corporation, saying how they um, they think the proposal will impact the environment, including those ramps, artless wetlands, um, critically endangered species, and how they plan to mitigate or offset those impacts. Mm. so we expect that um, what's called an EIS, the Environmental Impact Statement, to be released for public comment uh, within the the next weeks to months Mm -hmm. so it's it's imminent
6: Yeah. So what would you like to see happen? Uh, Clearly um, there was a a moment back in time when uh, people were advising that the project shouldn't go ahead at at all and now it's going to be assessed, so what would would the campaign like to see happen
5: now? Yeah, sure, so for from BirdLife Australia's perspective, um, it's full stop. No development or building within Ramsar List of Wetlands. Um, those are, I said, internationally important. We've signed a convention saying that we'll do everything in our power to protect these wetlands. Um, so we think that it's completely inappropriate to, to have a private development of this scale within Ramsar listed Wetlands. So that's our red line. That's our line in the mud is no development no, no matter how big within these ramsar listed wetlands so if the walker corporation comes back and has a completely different proposal after the cis and it's land based and we have to look at the uh their plans and we, we don't think there'll be any impacts on uh threatened species including the birds then yeah we would be okay with that but um, the current proposal is completely um uh off limits as, as far as we're concerned
6: yeah, it's interesting because like, uh, proposals aren't often knocked back by the federal government, but recently a project was knocked back um, because of, a gas project in WA was knocked back because of its impact on Ramsar-listed um, wetlands, wasn't it?
5: Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think previously um, we we had done uh, a bit of an analysis and I think it was like 99% of uh, proposals that get to the stage where they, they go through an environmental impact statement, they ultimately get approved. Um, Sometimes that's with conditions, sometimes that's just full outright approval. But as you said, uh, there was that recent um, referral that was rejected by the current Minister for the Environment, Susan Lee, um, just a few months ago, and and really um, that's two in the last two years that this current Minister has has rejected based on impacts to um, Ramsar, Listed Wetlands, and migratory Shorebirds. So the one you were referencing was um, impacts to... Shorebirds and the 80-mile beach Ramsar-listed wetland, which is in uh, northwestern Australia. And then another decision that Minister Lee um, rejected was the Turtle Cove Retirement Village, which was in the Great Sandy Strait, which is just north of uh, Morton Bay uh, in Queensland. And, again, that that rejection was due to impacts on Ramsar-listed wetlands and shorebirds. So the the precedent's been set by this minister that – she will reject a, a proposal, so we're just hoping that, and hoping and advocating that she'll make the similar decision for for Harbour.
6: How um, does the local community feel about the development?
5: Yes, yeah, so the the local community, we we work with um, a great local community action group called um, Redlands Twenty Thirty, and they do a lot of great advocacy, and and they've um, done some. Excuse me, uh, some local surveys, um, just out of shops and at, uh, community events and their surveys have found that 80% of the, uh, the community that they talked to, uh, opposed the, um, the current proposal by Walker Corporation, um, at the level that is currently being proposed. When the, the priority development area was announced, as I said, um, a few years ago, the original plan was to, to build a few hundred-unit apartment complex and really to redevelop the ferry terminal area around Tudor Harbor, which is the gateway to, to north Stratbrook Island. And it, it appears that the community really backed that really kind of low-key, low-impact development. But since um, since that original priority development area was announced, it's really ballooned into this massive, you know, thousands- 3,600-unit um, apartment complex, which is completely um, over-the-top from what was originally proposed.
2: Mm.
6: Last question. How can people get involved with the campaign?
5: Yeah, that's a great question. So for BirdLife Australia, if you just go to uh, actforbirds, actforbird org. Um, if you go to there, that's our BirdLife Australia campaign page, and you'll see uh, a button right there for Tune to harbor if you click that we have a sign up page so you'll get all the most important um announcements any news and especially uh when the environmental impact statement is released for public comment we'll be really uh, asking um anyone who who is concerned about this proposal to to put in a submission to that that public comment period because we really think that we need to demonstrate both the local opposition to the the proposal but also the the nationwide uh, opposition because really what happens at Tunda could happen anywhere if it's allowed to go ahead.
4: And that was BirdLife Australia's Andrew Hunter speaking to 3CR's Out of the Blue show. You can catch Out of the Blue on Sundays on 3CR from 11.30 a.m.
3: And next up, we have a segment about the Beirut explosion anniversary. So on August 4th, 2020, a large amount of ammonium nitrate stored at the port of the city of Beirut exploded, causing at least 7,500 injuries, $15 billion in property damage, and tragically over 200 deaths. One year on, the city of Beirut in Lebanon continues to grapple with the aftermath of the explosion amidst the COVID-19 pandemic, and government instability. And joining us now to discuss the one-year anniversary of this extraordinary event is three members from the Lebanese community here in Melbourne. Safa is a second-gen Lebanese-Australian artist studying a Master's of Architecture. Camille is a Lebanese musician and filmmaker. And Myrna is the host of 3CR's Salaam Radio Show and a DJ under the name of Marushti. Uh, welcome. Thanks for joining us, the three of you. So I think my first question will be for Safa. So one year on from the Beirut explosion, how are recovery efforts going?
0: Hi, um, thanks for having us. So mostly through NGO and community efforts, they've been able to fix many buildings, but um, a lot of people still aren't living in permanent homes. Some are homeless. Um, There are still many buildings that are destroyed or badly damaged, um, and Um, There are lots of partially fixed buildings, but not fixed enough for residents to go back in. And there's been um, minimal or non-existent government compensation. So Mm. all of these efforts are through NGOs.
3: Absolutely.
13: We can't rely on our government. We just have to do it through the nation and people overseas helping, helping helping our family back in Lebanon.
3: I see so so not a lot of um, government support but most of the recovery efforts have been led by NGOs um, and my next question is is for all of you really how has the tragedy affected you personally and your friends and family members
14: yeah well uh, first of all I think the biggest effect was on the mental health like my uh, many of my friends were traumatized like every time they heard the plane or uh, big sound. They they told me that like, it was freaking them out. Um, but yeah, also like I, I almost lost my grandma during the explosion, because she lived uh, around 5k from the blast site. So it was 3am. And it happened to be that I was like, uh staying up. Uh, and then I heard about the explosion. And then after I saw the, the footage, um, I thought like, shit, my grandma died for sure. Um, and I really freaked out because also I couldn't call her because the lines uh, weren't working um, so yeah it's, you know, it's crazy to think that you know you lost someone like that And but yeah since then it's like I feel all the young Lebanese people lost hope many of them went to Europe, many of them went to Canada, like I have a friend who went back to Lebanon uh, like a month ago, he told me like it like it's nothing uh, like what we remember of it
2: mm-hmm.
13: also like um at the moment it's on top of the explosion um you know there were lots of um economic issue in lebanon uh and also the pandemic hit, hit them um, and uh yeah on top of having a corrupt government that does nothing for its people um yeah, all these things have accumulated and uh the dollar uh, the Lebanese pound has lost its value. It's like um down by tenfold. So people can't buy um they need to just they are having to buy basic things, if any, they're also there's a shortage of petrol so um they line up every day um to to fill up their petrol. Um, and there's a shortage of medicine, so they can't get penadol, like, I hear my mom talking to all my aunties, uh, over there, and, um, it's really sad that they can't even get nutritious food, um, yeah, they can't, if they're, if they're in pain, they can't get Panadol, um, so all these things we hear about, like, is really heartbreaking, um, to see this, like, big, um, yeah, big decline, like, it it was already declining, but, like, yeah, at the moment, it's really, really bad, and um, people aren't living a decent life over there, and it really affects us here as well, as we really care about, um, yeah, our family and our country that we see deteriorate in front of our eyes, and um, yeah, we also feel hopeless. But we're trying to to do as much as as we can to help them from here.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And, and Safa, did you have uh, any thoughts on that question as well?
0: Yeah. Um. Well, besides, like yeah, the huge fact that our families and friends were affected over there. But being in Australia, it's been really hard to grieve from a distance. You feel mm-hmm. like um, you're yeah, you're unable to do anything about it and you feel like because you weren't there that your feelings aren't legitimate, even though they are.
2: Mm.
3: Of course, yeah. I, I really do feel for you. It sounds like the impacts of this have been devastating, both um, on a personal level and also just on a... A fundamental human rights level, not having access to medicine and and uh, health and etc. Um, and Myrna and
14: justice as well.
3: Yes, and justice. Um, yeah. And what measures have been taken to hold the government accountable for the devastation here?
13: Yeah. So there has been a trial um, in Lebanon uh, to find who's culpable of this. It's like a horrible event um, and it's uh, at the moment led by Judge Tariq Bitar. Uh, but it's facing a lot of uh, challenges and uh, the biggest one is the immunity. Uh, we have immunity in Lebanon for the representatives in government, which only can be lifted by the parliament, which is the government itself. So. Um, uh yeah so Tariq bitar is asking for lifting of those immunities of mps and officials um and he has in, yeah, he asked the interior minister uh for permission to lift immunity um ambassador drago who's the director of general security has um and the, the interior minister initially agreed but then changed his mind Uh, which led to protests outside his house. Uh, And before that, similar protests uh, by the Lebanese people uh, were happening outside Nabih Berri's house, who's the Speaker of Parliament, and who's a very corrupt person, but anyway, um, uh, because they were also stalling other uh, lifting of immunity for other MPs who were in his parties. Study, political body so um yeah there's a lot of um outrage from <laughs> people on the street uh who think, uh, who believe and it's their right to believe who any that anybody who's protecting any official uh, against persecution is also an enemy and a suspect themselves um and uh France uh, has announced, uh, other than that, like, France has announced that they will be doing sanctions targeting uh, polit- politicians who um, they think is capable uh, of it. Uh, uh, and uh, and they're proposing to help our government, but only if our government is formed. So there's a lot of now for the government to form. Um, and there's embassies from uh European embassies in Lebanon that are trying to gather information on those corrupt politicians
7: to do the sanctions.
13: Um, but yeah, and there's a call for um an international um court to yeah uh to do the trial. Um but it's it's a it's a bit yeah, it's very complicated, and um, yeah, and it's really hard to know who's saying the truth. Um, uh, because um, even if we have international court, you know, they've been known, for example, U.S. courts, they've been known to use um, it to prosecute their opponents. Um, so
2: yeah
3: <laughs> it it yeah. sounds like it's it's quite a, a complex uh situation and and there's a lot of outrage from the people um by the sounds of it and a bit of international pressure from from europe as well um but have we seen any changes in the leadership a year on uh,
14: not really actually uh like mm. the thing is the lebanese government keeps playing it's like a play they're putting together just to distract people like every time they do something wrong they they announce something like a resignation of an official or something just to uh calm the people down but but like one of the funniest things that happened is uh, when the october revolution started in 2019 uh yeah 2019 it was um we had a prime minister called hariri who was in power and people protested big time to get him out and he resigned, and they put someone else in his place. And after the second pl- uh, person resigned, they put back Hariri in his place. It's like, okay, we're out of actors. Let's <laughs> bring back that old actor. Um, yeah. So it's really and, and now a, he's resigned still. again. Yeah, no. now he's resigned again. It's like he, he's going on holidays by resigning. And um, yeah, and you know, it's a bit like a kids' show. Like when you're a kid, you you kind of uh, uh, take it in and you like, you get fooled by what's happening, but as you grow up, you're like, oh, like, the script is so basic and simple. (laughs) And that's what's happening now. Like, the Lebanese people are slowly waking up and they're uh, realizing that all of this... So, so, like, anyway, like, an advice I can give to the viewers who just read the Lebanese news on the, like, main news website. Like, when you hear of someone's resignation or the government collapse or whatever, it doesn't mean anything. Uh, It's just... Something they're doing to distract the media and the people, but I mean, before there's real change and the whole uh, political class really collapses, that's when things are really uh, different. It's not when one like like the way the Lebanese system is makes it that like if one of the it's like a hydra, if you cut one of the heads, two will grow from it. <laughs> so it's pointless to uh, like to have one official resigning because they're going to replace him with someone else. That's within the same class.
13: Yeah, um, also on that, the Saad al-Hariri who just resigned um, and who was assigned to make the government was also um, facing a lot of pressure from uh, the the president, Aoun, who um, wants the majority of his political parties in the government. And they've introduced this um, thing to government, which is the, the blocking third, which means so if third, of the government doesn't agree on a decision, nothing happens. And that's also been playing a part in like stalling a lot of things um, for the, a lot of things that the government uh, is required to do. It just always gets blocked by that, this uh, stupid rule um uh, yeah so it's really it's it just doesn't seem that there's a solution and specifically not a solution that will satisfy the people who want all those politicians out not just one um and it's important for that because like um all these different parties that control um the the government are based on like their religious party and so and because lebanon has all these different religions all these people that, um belong to certain religions want to make sure that their rights is kept so that's what's been like really dominating the scene is those politicians using um religion to control the people and to make them vote for them again and again and again
3: mm-hmm. so it sounds like it's a lot of show, um but not a lot of accountability or action uh, and Thank you camille for those those excellent analogies. I guess uh from a viewer's perspective, what can we in Australia do to help the situation in beirut
0: um, so it's it's pretty hard because um because of the current um currency value in Lebanon, like the country needs money, but we can't just continue to keep giving them money. Um but if you can set like send your donations to um reliable NGOs because they they do need it. But within Australia itself, you can um, check in on your Lebanese friends, ask them how they're doing. Um, on Wednesday, we're running an event at Monash University Caulfield to just talk about Beirut and celebrate Lebanese culture. So Camille will be um, playing some music there and we'll have um, Lebanese coffee and food. Um, yeah, just to keep keep Beirut in um, conversation. Um, also, the, there's more Lebanese people living outside of Lebanon than there are in Lebanon. So if you are um, a Lebanese Australian listening to this, check if you're eligible to vote because our voices do matter. And in the last, the 2018 election, um, only 3% of the di- diaspora voted. So, um, yeah, there's, the there's, uh, potential for us to change the narrative in
14: Lebanon. Yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, one thing you can do, like uh, Staffa design t-shirt that says yani which is uh, which means all of them means all of them. It's a slogan used in Lebanese protests, and all donations are going to the efforts in Beirut as well. And yeah, as, as Staffa stated, I think it's very important to um, to talk about it and put pressure because uh like the governments will only change if there's international pressure so like if here people like ask their political representatives to suppose uh, to support like this cause then the governments will put pressure on the politicians in Lebanon like now they um for example the European Union now puts pressure on uh Lebanese politicians but like each uh politician they considered corrupt will be banned from from traveling in the EU and will be banned from doing any cash transactions to anyone in the EU. So that's a big step forward. And I think we should maybe... I mean, of course, Australia is not that close to Lebanon to do that, but um, eventually maybe something similar could happen.
0: Yeah, but also in Europe, the the sanctions, there's a framework for them, but that hasn't gone through yet, so it could take it could take years. Mm.
13: Yeah, also... Um At the moment, I just want to add to all of this. There's, um, huge fires happening in Lebanon and it's really horrible to see. They're like, um, the effects of them are, of these, these fires are like, um, worth 10 years of fire in, uh, as a accumulated fire in one, in one event. So it's really bad and it's mainly, um, it's all over Lebanon, but also like the biggest part is in the north and so um part of the donation that Sha will be giving from the, her t shirt sale will be going to those um the uh, to an organization in the north that's helping with the fires and with the uh lebanese um fire defense team so um, yeah. On top of all what's happening now, there are fires, and, uh, and it's very hot at the moment in Lebanon because it's summer. So it, it will, I think, it, it will get worse um, if we don't do anything. And because of all this corruption, we don't have enough petrol to fight the fire for um, the fire brigade. And um, yeah, we need. It's like an urgent situation at the moment, and. Uh, I think we need a, a lot of donation for this um, to be resolved. Um,
2: yeah, can't do
13: yeah.
2: it. Yeah. Like it, uh, there's
13: a funny story with the Lebanese
14: government is that they they got uh, like fi- uh, firefighting helicopters a few years ago, but yeah. they, it like they never really activate. They just kept them there and never used them. And then they said that uh, they're actually unsuitable to be used in Lebanon. <laughs> <My> <laughs> like God. after they got them. Yeah. <laughs> That's how inefficient they are.
3: Wow, that, that's crazy. Um, well, thank you so much uh, to all three of you. Definitely some actionable steps we can all take there. Uh, Safa, could you just tell us uh, where we can access details for your event on Wednesday?
0: Um, so, it'll just be on, let's so open to the public, and it's at um, Caulfield Monash. Um, I'll also be live streaming it. I don't know if I sh- should send you a link to that or... yeah. Um, Yeah, so I'll just be doing it through my Instagram. So if you can't actually make it on the day, you can watch us live.
3: Perfect. So we'll share some of those details um, on the 3CR website, which you can uh, look at 3cr.org.au forward slash Monday Brekkie. Well, thank you so much, Camille, Safa and Myrna today. Really awesome to hear some of your insights into what's going on in Beirut. Um, And Camille, I know you're a musician. Do you have a, a song recommendation for us to play?
14: Yeah, there's a song I made back in Lebanon called Turas. Uh, I made it as a collaboration with some of my musician friends. Uh, it's my first time really mixing electronic music with the traditional Arabic music. So, yeah, I thought, uh, yeah, I mean, I felt nostalgic now that we're approaching the anniversary of the explosion. So I felt like maybe presenting this one.
3: Of course. So well, this is Turas um, by Camille's band, Tara Beats. Thanks for joining us.
4: So, um, if you've just joined us, that was Touras by Tarabit. Um, and just before that, we heard Jacob speaking to, um, three members of the Lebanese community as they talk about the aftermath of the Beirut explosion in 2020. Um, up now, we have La Trobe Student Union organiser Nawi, um, explaining why she's supporting university staff against forced redundancies. She also explores why student unions are losing their relevance and what can be done to get it back.
15: Hey, my name is Naui. I'm part of the La Trobe Student Union. I'm a general member there um, and I'm also helping coordinate the education campaign to stop the cuts with La Trobe students against uni cuts at the moment. Yeah, so can you
0: tell me a bit more about that? Is it mainly due to COVID?
15: Yeah, I guess La Trobe has been leading a little bit around the country when it comes to the cuts to education. So our Vice Chancellor, John Dewar, is actually um, the chair of Universities in Australia, who last year, when the university sector was hard hit by the COVID crisis, they argued to do voluntary redundancies to try and make up for the shortfall in their profits due to the lack of international students being able to come into Australia, which has kind of like unleashed a whole series of uh, restructures to our universities. And the National Week of Action, how is this going to
1: happen with lockdowns?
15: Yeah, so LaTrobe, Vice Chancellor John Dior, had a meeting with the staff um, on July fourteenth to announce the new cuts that are happening. So there's gonna be two hundred and thirty job losses at Latrobe and they're also gonna create three hundred new roles that I guess some of the staff that are being made redundant can reapply, which uh, you know, will be on more casualized contracts. So This has concentrated in some of the professional staff at La Trobe, but we're also seeing, for example, like the honours students of like the philosophy departments are losing their advisors and things like that. So pretty awful situation. So with the National Union students, we're coordinating a national week of action starting from August 11, and that'll go on for a week. So that'll be happening across Australia. But I guess, yeah, due to COVID, we are facing a bit of a bump in the road, but we are planning to do lots of online actions as well. You know, there's at the moment, at least specifically at La Trobe, there's a consultation period that lasts three weeks from the 14th. So we're also trying to bombard John Dewar and some of the consultation live streams that he's going to be doing, you know, ask some of these questions like, well, you say that You know, our education is not really going to suffer from these restructures, but we're already seeing that. And as students, we know that staff conditions and, you know, teaching conditions are our own learning conditions. So what does he have to say about things like that?
0: Do you know much about what's happened with the La Trobe Student Union? It doesn't exist in Bendigo anymore, for example, and now they've got this association instead
15: yeah, that's kind of the juicy story, because, I mean, John Dewar not only has been leading in attacking teaching and staff, but also the student union. So, yeah, last year, the Latrobe Student Union was defunded by 90%. That mm-hmm. remaining 90% was given to this new student association that was created across the Latrobe University campuses which is not a student union. It's not only controlled by students. The vice chancellor, for example, can sit on the board of directors. Every expenditure that, you know, the councils in either Bandura or Bendigo, all of the spending needs to be pre-approved by the board. So it really has from really all independence from student organizing. So I think that we need to yeah, understand this attack of creating, essentially, a SCAB student union in this Mm. broader context of attacks to higher education. And again, particularly the fact that John Dewar has been leading these cuts, I think, really presents an opportunity, I think, for us organizing at La Trobe to say that this is not an example that should be followed by other universities and that students are actually pretty pissed off about, you yeah, the state of education in our own bodies to uh, fight back and resist these cuts. And I think it does raise more questions about just like student unionism. Uh, in Australia, the fact that at the moment, you know, voluntary student unionism is what we are seeing, which means that the services and amenities fees that students pay uh, that goes directly to the university. And then it's up to the university to negotiate with the student unions to see how much of that funding they can receive, which I mean, immediately restricts, I guess, the student union in be able to position itself as oppositional to the vice chancellor if you know, all of their funding comes from the universities. You know, the fact that that happened in, what was it, 2005 or 2006 really defanged, I think, a lot of the student unions around the country. So, yeah, I think like we're presented with a bit of an opportunity, I think, at the moment to rebuild student unionism um and actually start drawing the lines and saying, well, If you are going to look at the broader context of education in Australia, we have consistently seen liberal governments attacking the sector, trying to more and more, you know, direct it as an American style model where... You can pay, you know, thousands of dollars for your degree. Also, the lowering of, like, the hex repayment thresholds last year, you know, the doubling of the arts degrees. It's really, yeah, kind of like a pretty poor terrain for students at the moment. So we definitely need to rebuild the like, grassroots activism um, and engage more students.
0: How has everything gone with the union doing your elections and everything during COVID and not having people there to vote and...
15: Mm-hmm.
1: Like how how's that gone?
15: So last year, kind of like the reason why the student association was created is because there's been two factions of the labor students running the Latrobe Student Union for many many years, and there was a. Uh, Someric faction that were called the mods so quite famously you know were revealed in that 60 minutes expose as branch stackers mm. all of the people in this 60 minutes expose of branch stacking had been previous presidents of the Latrobe Student Union um all of them <laughs> okay. so um yeah it was just like oh yeah we know all of these people that have been presidents of the Latrobe Student Union um and the president from last year Annabelle Romano was also in that Labour Party faction um so she was kind of like behind restructuring the the student union and merging it with kind of like the regional student unions and creating this vice chancellor led kind of um student association and COVID kind of made it easier because well there's students aren't really around so there was a lot of Undemocratic character to it, and then different section of the labor students wanted to save the Latrobe Student Union, and you know a lot of us that weren't part of labor helped to oppose this new association being constructed. But like the vote turnout, for example, to the Latrobe Student Union elections last year was it was like 900 students, which yeah. does not really um, represent, yeah, the cohort, yeah, mm. yeah. I think it more represents the fact that student unions haven't really been doing a lot for the past few years, you know, And um, mm. it's been about, oh, let's run like a free breakfast program or, you know, mm. events, which is kind of like, obviously nice, you know, if students are poor, these are things that are necessary, but it really has completely taken the edge off of saying, well, actually, students care about broader things than just kind of like events and And free breakfasts and if you Mm. want to make yourself relevant you need to actually have things to say about events that are happening in their lives and it's not only going to be directly related to their education it could be things about the environment it could be you know things like standing up against racism we saw, you know black lives matter up last year you know we've seen palestine being bombed this year so all of those issues actually students care about them and if their student union was doing things like that well they'd be like cool Wow, they can do more than just, you know, give me a muffin on like Wednesday mornings. That's awesome. Maybe there is other things that we can do. And importantly, like it means that people feel compelled to want to organize because there's a bit of a lead given. So that's a key ingredient that I think is missing to like organize students at the moment. And
4: that was Latrobe student union member, Naui, sharing tips for revitalising student unions. Naui spoke to Stick Together, a 3CR program that covers industrial, social and workplace issues. Stick Together is on Wednesdays at 8.30am. You can listen online by visiting their 3CA, 3CR page at 3cr.org.au forward slash stick together to hear more stories like these.
3: And that brings us to the end of our program today. Um, if you want to support Safa's event mentioned earlier in our section about the Lebanese crisis, um, you can visit her Instagram page at Safa El Samad. That's S-A-F-A-E-L-S-A-M-A-D. Um, and you can also support uh, Camille's band by visiting facebook.com forward slash Project. Thanks for joining us.
4: Thank you.
1: 3 our Breakfast would like to thank the new international bookshop Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.